There are many forms of love in the tarot pack. There is that happy, even delighted child who sits astride a grey mare surrounded by sunflowers. They are clearly loved. So is the lion who submits to the caress of a maiden who loves him in the strength card. All four aces in the pack, proffering cups and swords and pentacles and wands, are love offerings. The purest form of potential energy encapsulated in each suit. The potential for feeling an emotional connection, the Ace of Cups. The potential for manifesting something new and dynamic, rewarding and beneficial for ourselves or the culture, the Ace of Pentacles. As well as that manifestation that may come from creativity and the intellect, the Ace of Swords. Or maybe we are assisted by that intuitive, making sense of things inspiration that comes our way via the Ace of Wands. I am deliberately leaving out of this equation the couples cards, as this form of creating good feeling between two human animals and then narrating that good feeling back to each other in words like, I love you, seems to me right now a kind of bad faith. Bad faith let us remind ourselves, is the psychological phenomenon whereby we might act inauthentically by yielding to the external pressure of society, uh, the culture, or a narrative. One of those narratives may be created by Eros, and in so doing, disowning our innate freedom as sentient creatures. I guess this is what Fritz Perls might have been aiming at when he accused his clients of being fake at times. Although surely with pearls, we are never really that far from simulation and copying and the phony and the sham. Pot, kettle, black is often the case with Fritz pearls. But maybe the point is still a good one. Having fallen foul of a finite game, to use the words of James Cass, I am trying to reacquaint myself right now with the rules for that infinite game of love. Finite games are played for the purpose of winning. For example, in the game we all play, trying to acquire the best partner for ourselves from the stack'em high, sell'em cheap shelves of Hinge or Bumble. Like many who play the finite game, we always believe we are playing an infinite game until it becomes clear that we're not. According to Cass, not only must finite games end, but there must always be a winner and a loser at least in the eyes of the culture, that supermind which dictates everything, for it holds the keys to our language, and whoever holds the keys to the language holds the keys, at least in the human realm, to everything. The winner, after a breakup, is always, of course, the person who dematerializes from the union quietly and circumspectly, as at the end of a film. The credits roll, we sigh that the couple never made it, and everyone goes back to their own lives, whatever that means. The loser is more likely to be the person who rails and moans and groans and perhaps continues to do so for months on end about the injury of their loss. That person, I think we all share this common perspective on, and this perspective is that this individual is somewhat of a pathetic loser, as well as a bad loser. Pathetic having two meanings here, both serving this case. One, pathetic, 
as in arousing pity, especially through vulnerability and sadness, but also more colloquially as in, quote, miserable, inadequate, of a very low standard, abject. Here's the Oxford Dictionary sentence example that follows this definition. He's a pathetic excuse for a man. From the Greek pathos, suffering, also pathetikos, sensitive. So I guess a sensitive suffering fool. Which takes on a more active sense in the Latin, indicating something which affects the emotions. For now, I think it is fairly clear to see or rather here in this case, that I am currently a somewhat pathetic manifestation of this self. At the end of the tarocure, I hope to once more be a decent, even laudable excuse for a person, a lovable excuse for a person, a virtuous excuse for a person. And the only way I can, of course, get this perception is from the culture from the supermind, which is to say you, who are listening to, inverted commas, me. If I have any goals at this point in the infinite game, I play through my engagement with the archetypes, the ideas and forms of the tarot. It is to shake off the pathetic image you currently have of me and become lovable once more in your ears, dear listener. As maybe I'm trying to do here in a WhatsApp message to my friend Sophie, which I send accompanying a video about attachment patterns, which I really like. Just another quick thing. You know, I was noodling around on YouTube last night and I found one of those School of Life videos and uh, just just talking about that kind of paradigmatic face-off between the anxious, preoccupied and avoidant attachment pattern and i was i mean i know this right i mean this is this is my fucking bread and butter but it's so weird like after three months i was suddenly like yes of course it's just that <laughs> it's just fucking that it's this fucking stupid anxious preoccupied um uh attachment um person me um who seems drawn like like uh, bees to honey, like flies to dung, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know, like, um, what are those things called, those birds? Um, uh, the name of the bird you cannot bring to mind at this point, Steve, although you can see it in your mind's eye, is a hummingbird. Anyway, those ones that go for the honeysuckles, right? Um, two... <laughs> To avoidant, to the avoidant um, attachment figure, um, who of course is my father, um, through and through, you know, my father who told me at the age of 11, well, didn't tell me, told my parents to tell me, um, this is my biological father, right, who told my parents to tell me that he didn't want to see me anymore because I was too much and I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I talked too much and I, I, uh, when I came round to visit him, you know, once a month or whatever it was, I would, uh, you know, um, um, ask for too much. I would ask for, you know, we had this thing, I'd go around and visit him and we'd go to a, 
you know, there was <laughs> so seventies, isn't it? Uh, there were these places where you could go and you could you could actually borrow, like in a video, like in like in like a video store. But you could actually you could take out, you could borrow. There were private establishments, but you could borrow long playing records, LPs, and we would go. And I think you had to pay, right? I mean, but you could borrow a bunch of LPs. And I remember the most exciting thing we would do is we'd go go and, and borrow some of these LPs, right? And um, and then come back to his place and he had this amazing hi-fi system. And he would allow me to, you know, record um, a couple of these LPs onto one of those um, C, what was it, C95 tapes, right? That you could put two LPs. You would put one LP on the one side and one LP on the other side. And I think I think it pissed him off that I was greedy and addictive, even as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. And I didn't just want one. I wanted like, ideally, I wanted as many as I could possibly have. I wanted like three, you know, I wanted like three tapes. It's like, oh, can't we do another tape? Um, yeah. And, and my father, I have discovered, having had sporadic contact with him over the years, he uh, really fits that uh, avoidant attachment pattern completely. You know, if there's any friction, any kind of anything, he scuttles away. Um, I mean, this is a man I haven't seen for 30 years. Uh, he's he's never invited me to come and see him in South Africa. Um, he is avoidant to the extreme. And yet, of course, when he's not in avoidant mode, he's, he's, he can be very loving, he can be very sweet, he can be very kind, he can, he can be very loving. And, uh, and this is what I do, right? I go for these really loving creatures who are also super avoidant. And when, they, when you step on their toes, they scuttle away. And my response to that is always the wrong response, because the right response would be like, okay, see you. Um, yeah, I'll be here if you want to come back. But I, I can't ever to take that response. And what I do is, of course, I just chase after them and, and they don't want to be chased. I'm like the little the little dog that's like, oh, no, no come back. <laughs> and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, so I thank you, Alanda Botton, and your school of life, because you suddenly just reminded me that that's the dynamic, and that's what I do, and uh, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, I'll share that video with you, because uh, that video in four minutes is my love life. Maybe I should on my hinge profile, maybe I should just, maybe I should stick that up and just sort of say, you know, like, hey. <laughs> um, uh, are you an avoidant attachment person um, who thinks you're like, who thinks you're actually, um, who thinks, who believes that you're, uh, that you're um, a sort of secure attachment, but actually you're avoidant attachment. Uh, well, if you go out with me, you'll become avoidant attachment. You'll become avoidantly attached. Um, <laughs> you've got to laugh. Anyway, off to do some writing. Um, but I just wanted to share that with you because, uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like even, 
I don't know. I feel like talking to you has, has helped me to, to understand that better. Thanks, Soph. Ciao. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me, the mystic and poet Hafiz states unequivocally. Of course you do not say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye, that is always saying, with that sweet moon language, what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Of course, we can only be lovable in the eyes of another. Of course, we can only be lovable in the eyes of another if we are somewhat lovable in the eyes of ourself, capital S. But what is a self anyway, other than the inherited language and symbolic meanings of the supermind, the culture, reflecting an unknown listener in this case, who processes these communications through their portion of the cultural supermind, or as part of the collective unconscious, which listens without listening, speaks without speaking. A few nights back, I saw an image of love which I cannot shake loose from my mind, and I don't want to shake, it, shake loose from it either. The scene occurs in a wonderful documentary that I urge you to watch. It's just come out. It's by Lizzie McKenzie, and it's called The Hermit of Trigue. And the way it works is that in the last eight years, Lizzie has made friends with a hermit called Ken, Ken Smith. Ken lives an unhurried life of awe and wonder, as well as a life of wounding, a life of noticing, of silence, of single-focused discipline, of husbandry, as in husbanding edible crops into existence, also photographs in conversation with the natural world, but all of this outside of, social, of the social intercourse through which we, you and me, still seem very much to be bound. Ken is husband to no one else but himself, and even more so to the land, to life, to the life of the land, to life, capital L. Lizzie has made friends with Ken, and it would seem vice versa, in order to document his existence in this, his 74th year of being Ken, 40 of which have been spent predominantly untied or unhooked, I don't know, unbothered, you might say, if that's what you're after, unbothered, unloved, from or by our species. H. Sapiens. And what has Ken been doing in the last 40 years? Well, he's been building a log cabin, as well as other incredible structures in which to live and work, also meticulously keeping track in his notebooks and journals of those aspects in his life which he feels most connected to. There are many moving scenes in this film, but the one that most touched me was where we find Ken examining his pride and joy. A fairly innocuous-looking yellow rose, just the one, not a show rose in the slightest, but still oh so tenderly nurtured and supported on its climbing frame. And Ken is clearly in love with this rose, as we are in love with Ken. No, not in love. I think, rather, we simply feel love for him in a sort of uncomplicated, non-eroticized human to non-eroticized human way. Oh, oh yeah. That's the one I'm taking care of. I've put all these uh, shells uh, below. That's the one I'm taking care of, he says. I've put all those shells below. This is how he introduces Lizzie to his rose. He then tells her that roses enjoy being touched, 
which allows him, in a manner that is almost too intimate to bear, to reach out and caress this beautiful rose. And then what you're supposed to do is uh, talk to it. It does have an effect on them because plants can feel. It feels at this moment as if Ken was stroking the cheek or the breast of his withered but still beautiful Bride of Solitude on this, their 40th anniversary. Or maybe they are lying in a bed made from scrap lumber found in the junkyard, but put together in such a way so as to be beautiful, never abject. The rose is an object, a love object for Ken, but the abject object, such as this self narrating these words to you, is not even an object. The word object is made from that participle ject, as in reject and eject, which means away, but with the addition of ob in object, which translates as in the way of. So away, but in the way of, in the way of away. <laughs> and the way I guess I understand that is that the object puts itself in the way of us. And we want to be in the way of that object quite often, um, unless it's a stone in the middle of the road, the stone, you know, that one, that poem. Um, but it's, it's a, it puts itself in the way of us and we want it to be in the way of us. The object has become abject, however, when it has been thrown onto the trash heap. I think of how Max would feel if suddenly he found himself disowned, let go of, no longer attached to me, his primary attachment figure. Or to quote Kristeva, who many feel has, ha has the final word on this, there looms within abjection one of those violent, dark revolts of being directed against a threat that seems to em emanate from an exorbitant outside or inside, ejected beyond the scope of the possible, the tolerable, the thinkable. It lies there quite close, but it cannot be assimilated. It beseeches, worries, and fascinates desire, which nevertheless does not let itself be seduced. But back to Ken, who is never abject, and in his scene with the rose, what makes the moment even more bittersweet is when we see that very same scene being played out again the following morning, but this time only with some slight variations in his mental script. I can't recall seeing that, actually. I can't recall seeing this before, in flower. That's the one you showed me last night. Right, that's my memory that's uh, suddenly gone strange. You love that, don't you, Rose? They love it, actually. They have a feeling. Every plant has a feeling. Do you think it helps them grow? Yeah, it does. Yeah, you speak to them kindly. Hmm. You go, know, oh, the beautiful, beautiful little flower then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps dementia is on the cards for Ken, or some kind of complication from an earlier brain injury which had resulted from the traumatic assault he'd been a victim of as a young man. 
This assault seems to have set him on the course to becoming a hermit, if one can ever become this archetype. Remember how socially needy we are as creatures. We really do need each other, even the others we sometimes can't bear to tolerate. It would seem, and this may be the case with Ken, that some are born hermits, which is to say introverts, maybe even highly sensitive uh, introverts. And some, of course, achieve the status of hermits, um, perhaps as Ken did by realizing that his socioeconomic status in society um, was not really ever going to allow him to walk as freely as he needed to walk. And some of us have a hermit lifestyle thrust upon us or maybe beaten into us in some way. I felt after watching this film a profound fear as well as a sublime solace. The fear of this becoming the second half of my life, albeit with the added functionality of being able to do my work on Zoom and make podcasts. But still, husband to no one. Husband to no one but the land, and I suppose to Max, although I don't feel like I'm Max's husband. I am Max's parent. The solace, I guess, comes from the understanding, which surely must come to all who watch this film, that Ken's life might perhaps be a richer one in many regards to ours, even though some kind of profound sacrifice seems to have been made in order to have access to certain forms of rapture that perhaps we can only imagine. I also found the documentary to be a kind of objective correlative for a poem that I'm learning by heart at the moment, a poem whose medicine I really, really need, and that is Jack Gilbert's The Great Fires, which goes like this. Love is apart from all things. Desire and fulfilment are nothing beside it. Neither body nor mind can truly love, even if they try to lead us there. What is not love provokes them. What is not love quenches them. Love lays hold of everything we hold dear, but we are not able to hold onto it. Passion is one of its many paths, but passion does not bring us to love. Desire opens the castle of our spirit so that we might find there the inner mystery of love, hidden, intangible, silent. Love does not last, but it is different from the passions that do not last. Love lasts by not lasting. Isaiah said, Each of us walks in our own fire for our sins. Only love allows us to walk free in that sweet transitory music of our pained and particular hearts. Ken, Ken Smith, as someone who continues to channel that archetype of the hermit, is clearly walking free and very much in love with his life. Not really walking free of late. I have wondered what communication other than this poem I might need to hear in order to ease the particularities of my own singed heart. In looking for that original passage from Isaiah, which Gilbert refers to, Isaiah 43, if you want to look it up, 
I came across a 19th century hymn which hews very close to those words from the King James Bible in that passage. And it struck me that these words are the words of love that we are all wanting not just to utter, not just to say to each other, as well as, as, well as to hear from each other. And I certainly think that in my role as a psychotherapist, in some way, I am always saying these words to another in pain. Telling each other alive, about each other alive, as W.S. Graham would put it. So maybe if you're in need of some of this love, the love apart from love, apart from expectations, from needs, from the demands of people or situations which love us only when we are able to fulfill and satisfy them, only when we are able to function as we are required to do by that situation or by them, then this hymn is also for you. It goes like this. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. I will be with thee, and when thou wadest through all those rivers, they shall not overflow thee, they shall not overflow thee, and when thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon thee no flame kindle upon thee no flame kindle upon thee no flame kindle upon thee hey steve um i just was thinking this morning of something and i just wanted to share it um i was just um left with the memory the image that you shared with me of you being this little boy with an appetite for life and an appetite for as many records as you could get your hands on and um, being delivered the message that you were somehow too much and it really just it, it's just sort of stayed with me because I think these messages we get as kids, obviously they are, otherwise you and I would not be in business as therapists. They are so, so damaging. And it just really, um, you know, I just felt for you because we carry these messages. It's funny, in my, in my family, too muchness is kind of celebrated. Um, more is better. And as a child, I was given, because I was shy and internal, um, I was given 
a different message. I was, I was, I was somehow, I somehow picked up the message that I wasn't enough. Um, and so I've worked very hard all my life to, um, you know, be brave, be outgoing, be, uh, oh, what's the word? More extrovert. Um, but I remember, I just wanted to share with you something that I know I don't need to share because, you know, you're a fucking therapist, you know all this stuff, but I remember when I was um, in very early recovery and I spent the first three or four years of my recovery from substances in a state of very deep depression and at uh, certain points was really actually very suicidal and um, I remember my dear dear lovely friend Sarah who sort of was on call uh, in those days um, to me um, I remember her saying down the phone to me with enormous tenderness that if I took my life there would be um, a precisely Sophie-shaped hole in the world and that I was exactly who I was meant to be and who the world, you know, the world needed me, <laughs> needed, needed me to fill that very specific shape that nobody else could ever fit. And, um, I don't know, in, in saying this, in repeating this to you, it doesn't have the same, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and it doesn't have the same power as it did at that moment. Um, but I just know how, you know, I know how painful it is to come up against these old messages that we haven't completely rid ourselves from. And you know, the image of you sort of containing yourself and containing your house. Um, you know, it's, it, it, um, it seems, it's, it, I imagine, a, I imagine a lot of, um, well, it just makes me sad. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I just wanted to say again that you, you know, you know, you're not too much. And um, yeah, I didn't need to send this message, did I? <laughs>